Hello, and welcome to the Divorce Woman's Guide podcast, where we talk about the things us divorcees are thinking, but not always talking about, as we turn our divorce into the best gift you've ever been given. And I do so with a little bit of sass and a whole lot of class. I am your host, Wendy Sterling, founder of The Divorce Rehab. I am here to support you in this transition phase of your life so you can start your new best chapter on your own terms. After all, that's what I did after my own divorce. And now it is my mission to change the conversation around divorce and help you see why your divorce, like mine, was the best gift you ever received. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Divorce Woman's Guide podcast. How are you all doing today? As a reminder, don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode as they come out every single week. And I especially don't want you to miss today's episode because I am here with Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, aka Dr. Z. Hello, Jamie. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm so looking forward to speaking with you today about narcissism and narcissistic relationship abuse and what that spectrum looks like. But before we dive in, I want to share a little bit more with our audience today about you. So Dr. Jamie Zuckerman is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in the Philadelphia region who specializes in stress, anxiety, depression, and relationships. She is also an expert on narcissistic relationship abuse. She's an avid media contributor on mental health topics and the co-host of the podcast, It's Me, Dr. Z with JB. So Jamie, thank you so much for being here today. I, I really am looking forward to this conversation because it is one that I hear about quite a lot. And I always want to make sure that I bring in experts who are better equipped to talk about these types of topics today. And before we dive in, I always ask all of my guests, what is it that motivates you to do the work that you do and how it is that you came to specialize in this area? Mm -hmm. So, Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I, I, I guess I started in psychology. I was always just fascinated with the actual brain itself, not even personality and things like that, just the brain. And then that kind of morphed into uh, personality stuff, development stuff. And then I knew I wanted to be a therapist. So that's kind of how that transpired. Uh, I worked in neurology for a long time, working with patients who had neuro neurological conditions like MS and epilepsy. Uh, and then I went into private practice, started doing a lot of anxiety and depression work. And my practice is largely females. And as you can imagine, a lot of people come into therapy because their relationships are falling apart or things aren't working anymore. And what I started noticing was a lot of women, and it was a lot, would come in and talk about their significant others. And it got to the point where, you know, everyone's story is important, obviously, and there's differences, but it got to the point where it was almost as if I was hearing the same exact story every single time, no matter how different the variables were. And, you know, it, it I, I knew what, you know, obviously I was working with that it was kind of this narcissistic characteristics and qualities, which we'll get into, but it floored me with how pervasive it is and how 
frequently it occurs and how much more, maybe because of social media, but how much more in the public eye it is now. And so people are much more aware, which is a great thing, and much more in tune to these kinds of symptoms, you know, and, and are able to look for it ahead of time. But for some of the women that I see that have been in these relationships for so long that really feel stuck for a whole bunch of different reasons where it's not just easy to just up and leave. I started kind of catering to, to that type of relationship and it just really grew from there. And I just found it to be super rewarding because as you know, and when you work with people, there comes a point where, you know, people that are listening that have been in narcissistic relationships, there comes a point where it clicks, right? There comes a point where you realize, oh my God, there's a pattern to this. And you start to feel empowered. You start to realize you're not crazy and you start to feel like you can handle this. And that to me, when I see my patients get to that point is super rewarding. And I think that's definitely one of the biggest motivators for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I am really big on wanting to ensure that we're all on the same page, because as we were talking before we hit the record button, you know, narcissism is kind of the the divorce, you know, dare I say it's a buzzword, right? It's yeah. a word that gets thrown around a lot, one that I, you know, I'm, I'm very cautious in using unless someone has been diagnosed. So for the purposes of our conversation today, I would love for you to explain what narcissism is and what a nurse being in a narcissistic abusive relationship looks like knowing that it's on a spectrum. Sure. So I tell people exactly like you said, that narcissism exists kind of on this continuum and it varies based on the degree of awareness that the person has and the degree to which it interferes with all aspects of their functioning. So, you know, on one end, you know, there's, there's something, there's healthy narcissism, right? So you're an expert in something. So when you talk and you're giving, you know, you're going to speak at an event, your narcissism stuff may be a little bit louder than, you know, if you're out to dinner with friends and that's healthy narcissism. It, it helps us sell at our jobs, right? It helps us feel motivated. It makes us feel confident. And there's a healthy level of that. We know when to rein it back in. We know when to kind of bring it forward and we're kind of in, in control of that. It's not interfering with our relationships, our functioning. If anything, it's benefiting us and helping us. We have awareness of it. Then as you kind of go down the continuum, the awareness level as the narcissistic traits or tendencies start to increase, the awareness may start to decrease, which means you're not as, uh, you know, it's not as obvious to you now when you're doing this. Somebody may challenge you on something and either you don't care, which we'll get to that part, or you're just not aware of it. The difference is, again, before we get to the other extreme, sometimes people who don't have awareness of it, who have, let's say, unhealthy patterns from childhood, narcissistic type characteristics that they don't have awareness of. However, when brought to their attention, when in therapy and they gain awareness of this, they have a willingness to work on it because they don't want to harm other people. They care about other people. They have empathy. They want to make their relationships work. They don't want to be that person. So they can work on it. So there's the awareness, reining it back in. Then there's, I don't have awareness, but when brought to my attention, I have empathy so I can make necessary changes to make my life better and everyone else is around me. Then you get to this part, 
the other end, which is not only is there a lack of awareness, there is a lack of empathy, meaning they don't care if they hurt you. They could very be very much aware of what they're doing, but they don't care. It's a strategy. It's manipulative. And they're not just a narcissist in one domain, right? Like I, I may have my narcissistic tendencies appear more in my career aspect, but this is, it's pervasive. It's a pervasive personality style where it is, it infiltrates all areas of your life, work, relationships, family, everything, communication with a waiter or a waitress everything. Um, It is who they are. There is no, you know what? I just realized I was a huge jerk. It it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So it's pervasive and it's not just being an a-hole in a relationship. It's pervasive, you know, because a lot of times people say my ex is, you know, is a narcissist or my ex-girlfriend or my ex-boyfriend is a narcissist. They're just not a good person in the dating aspect, maybe, but that doesn't mean they're a narcissist because they could be very well-adjusted in other domains of their life. Yeah. And I think it's really important that, you know, people listen and hear that because, you know, it is something that a lot of us will say, and, and, and I've even heard, I mean, we are all, we all have narcissistic characteristics within us, but to your point, it's on a varying scale. And, you know, so, you know, for people to be throwing this around, like they don't, and other people do, or finger pointing, you know, we get to educate ourselves with this episode and, you know, with this topic. So for those people who are on sort of that extreme narcissistic abusive side of, you know, the spectrum, how, you know, what's the process? Because so many times you don't, you have no idea that you've been kind of, you know, the way I describe it is it's almost like you've been, you know, a a web has been spun that you are so tightly woven into that you 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 can't even see it. So for those people who are listening, who are maybe either in that place or starting to wake up, how do they know that they are in that type of a relationship? Yeah, excellent question. So one of the things that I tell people and and tell your listeners too, is that if you are in a narcissistic relationship, if you are realizing that you're in a narcissistic relationship, it is not your fault. Absolutely none of us, I don't care how smart, how successful, every single one of us, or none of us are immune to it. The only thing that makes you immune to it, or at least has the chance of being immune to it, is having information to know what to look for. That really is is the only way because the way the relationship, the cycle of the relationship is set up is so that you're not aware of it. And just like you said, you know, this web has been spun around you that you're not aware of. I kind of describe it as like this cage almost. And every so often a bar is put up. And then before you know it, you look around and you're isolated from everyone. You don't know how you got here. So it's easy to blame yourself. But the truth is, is not your fault. Uh, There was no way for you to know. That's why these types of conversations are so important. If you find yourself in one, if you find that you could be in one, it's kind of your, you know, the, the red flags are starting to show, let's say. One of the one of the things in the beginning that you want to look for if you're kind of in the beginning stages of this is if it seems, and I don't mean this to be a pessimist. I've just been doing this a while. It kind of it sounds like that, but that's that's not what I, you know. If it seems too good to be true, right? If you heard the word soulmate from the other person on, you know, date number one, two, three, four, you have to ask yourself kind of what is this person basing 
this idea that I'm their soulmate on that, you know, they don't know anything about me. And while it feels good to be enamored in that way, to be the center of somebody's world and to feel that love, it's odd. Right. And I think we get wrapped up in this fairy tale. We can thank Disney for that, but like we get wrapped up in this fairy tale of relationships. It actually is not healthy because they're not basing their quote love for you on anything. They don't, they may not even know your middle name. They don't know anything about you. So there's that. And it's very hard to separate that because it feels so good, right? Like who doesn't want to be loved and enamored like that? Things like in the beginning, that love bombing stuff, we talk about gifts and, and you know, overdoing it over, it, everything's over and above. Right? It moves extremely fast. It is not gradual. It is a tidal wave. And the reason why this happens is to kind of suck you in and lock you in because, oh my God, I've never met anyone like you before. And all the while, while you're starting to feel vulnerable towards them and they get a lot of information about you, they're not doing that because they care. They're doing that because they're taking all that information and they're storing it for later use to hold against you, to use to push your buttons, to make you feel you know, insecure, whatever. So that's kind of something to look for. If you find yourself right now in one of those types of, it's too good to be true, take a step back and look at it. Maybe take a little bit of a break and see how the other person responds. Do they respect your need for a break? Do they respect your need for a boundary? Or do they absolutely disregard it completely? That's definitely a big, a big kind of red flag to know that you are starting to get involved in this type of relationship. When you're in it, once the love bombing stage goes away, because it will, and it will, whether they're with you or somebody else, they will not change. This is the cycle. It will go from this love bombing to this devaluing stage, it's called, called where they will slowly start to kind of chip away at your self-esteem, but in a way that you can't necessarily call them on it. So, you know, something like, oh, you know, I, I like that dress on you, but I, I really like the black one on you, right? Or you know, I, I, I like you with makeup, but you, you look better without it. And so it's these kind of slow comments or these all of a sudden one day, they just like kind of are cold to you and you don't know why, you don't know what you did. And it's all set up to make you feel like you're the problem. So if you're in a relationship and you feel like you're the problem all the time, but you really don't know what you did and it's constant... That's another thing to kind of take a step back and look at and say, okay, is this a pattern? Because it becomes very difficult to distinguish it because you feel like you're going crazy. You start to doubt your perception, you doubt your reality, you doubt your judgment. And that's all part of this. And then one day they just will stop talking to you. They may leave for two weeks and come back and not explain themselves. They may do something horrible. And then the love bombing starts again to get you back. And it's all deliberate. So people, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, do they know they're doing it? Yes, they know. And no, they do not care. The only time they may not know that they're doing it is if the behavior is so habitual because they've been doing it for so long. But once you you bring it to their attention, they are aware that they're doing it. They're not going to change it, right? So they know what they're doing and it's deliberate. Everything is calculated. So if you are in it, and this sounds familiar, start to look at the patterns in this cycle because it is very much a cycle and it's built on this intermittent reinforcement, which means you never know what you're going to get. It's the same model of addiction. 
So you just keep trying and trying and then maybe you'll get it. But there's no rhyme or reason. So you don't even know what to do to get it, right? So it becomes addictive. Yeah. And something that's coming up for me, you know, that I always used to think like, does every one of these boxes have to be checked to know that this is happening? Like, can you talk a little bit? Because I know sometimes people will say, well, he, you know, he or she does this and that, but not that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not narcissism, right? Mm-hmm. So, so can you talk a little bit about that too? Because some people, you know, either are in denial, right? Which is yes. normal, or they're saying to themselves, well, they don't check every box. Yes. I get these questions a lot. Well, you know, my significant other does this, 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 or my mom does this, 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 but they don't do this. And this is what I say to people. No, you don't have to check every box. From a diagnostic criteria, from a like a tr- like psychiatric diagnostic criteria for diagnose- diagnosis purposes, you need to have a certain amount of criteria in certain sections. But how does that translate into day-to-day? Does it really matter if they don't check all of the things that I just said, no, it doesn't. Because here's the thing. They may not be physically abusive, but maybe they're sexually abusive. They may not be sexually or physically abusive, but maybe they're financially abusive, right? They may look like they have a ton of friends. Like they may not fit every single box, but the question is, are they still unhealthy and toxic for you, right? Like just because they don't meet every single thing that we're listing, they may have other things, you know, n- n- narcissistic personality disorder is very, it's, it's very similar across the board, right? Like it's a certain set of, it's like a blueprint and it's like the blueprint is literally like in implanted in all these people, but there's going to be variations. Sure. And so you have to be careful. You don't use those variations to justify their toxic behavior. Yeah. Just like so- you said, like, well, they don't meet this. So they're not that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people think it's got to be every single box, but to your point, it's about, you know, the degree to which they are exhibiting behaviors in each of those areas that could also be uh, an explanation. So I can imagine that there's some people listening right now going, oh my goodness, I think this is me. I think I am in this type of a relationship. And let's say they, you know, they maybe try to kind of put some distance between them and their spouse and their spouse, you know, figures out a way to, you know, weave them back into the web. Mm -hmm. What is, what is like, what is a common, you know, some common advice that you give those people to really start untangling themselves from where they've gotten themselves into? Yeah. So there's a couple kind of major ones that I give and then some additional ones. This is going to depend on whether you have children, right? Whether you're married, whether you're dating, whether you live together. But generally speaking, the first thing I suggest is if you're going to leave, make sure you're safe. Because a lot of times when people are in these relationships, one of the biggest reasons why they don't leave is because they are petrified for their safety, their children's safety, friends' safety. Make sure you're safe. You need, this is the only, I don't want to say only, but really the only type of breakup that requires an exit plan. Not, you know, when you break up with someone normally, it may be difficult and sad and devastating. This is, this, you need an exit strategy. That, that's how complicated and complex this is. So make sure you're safe. Assuming that you're safe, reach out to 
as many people as you feel comfortable to gain support. And you don't need to get all your support from one person. You may need financial advice. That's your accountant, right? You may need friendship. That's somebody else. You may need somebody to help you with your kids dropping off, picking up because you know now you don't have a car because they took your car away from you because you left. So you have no transportation because the car was in their name. You need to figure out what type of support you need. And people often be isolated by this point. They don't talk to anybody. They have very few friends. If they do, it's their partner's friends for specific reasons. I can tell you that since I've been doing this, I rarely have had an instance where a person who's been isolated reaches back out as difficult as it may be, reaches back out to their existing support network and they're turned away. Typically, unless they've charmed the pants off of them, which which does happen, typically they're so happy that you have reached out to them because they have been so concerned about you. So reach out and be uncomfortable, but understand it's very rare that you're going to be turned away. And if it's somebody that's been charmed by the narcissist, then I guarantee you there's a lot more going on too. And they may not be the healthiest person to reach out to. This isn't about convincing people that they're a bad, that your partner is a bad person. This is about finding support and feeling comfortable and confident. You have somewhere to go, sleep at their house if you need to, You know those kinds of things, really practical things. If you can get into therapy, you are going to need therapy and not couples therapy. Couples therapy with a narcissist is counterproductive. I never refer somebody for couples therapy ever. And if for any reason I do, it's usually because either it's like custody court mandated or there's a, there's like a legitimate reason they have to go because what happens is find somebody who maybe doesn't know the nuances of narcissism, which is no fault of theirs, but they just it's not what they specialize in. The narcissist will charm the pants off of them and then what ends up happening is it's like, well, it looks like he or she is really trying. Why don't you have a date night? Why don't you reconnect? And this person who's been traumatized for so long, here's, oh my, this is another person who, who doesn't understand. And now I have to go on a date night or I look like the bad partner. You have to be very careful with that. Sometimes it's beneficial to have a third party. So somebody feels comfortable talking about how they want to leave the relationship, right. but I don't recommend it. You need therapy for yourself because you're going to likely feel like you are a shell of your former self. You're not going to know. I have patients who don't even know what taste in music they have, what colors they like, what style they like, because they have been told a narrative from day one. You're going to like this. You're going to listen to this and you're going to do this. So they, they don't really even know who they are. You know, I had a patient who told me when her husband, finally, when they ended things, she'd always slept on one side of the bed. And she started crying to me because she realized I hate sleep. And it sounds so simple, but it's not. I hate sleeping on the left side of the bed. I slept on the right side last night. And it was like, it sounds so simple, but to have that choice, they've been so deprived of choice for so long that they don't even know what they like. So there's that component of building your self-esteem back up, which you have to do in therapy with somebody who understands the nuances of narcissism. It's very important. Financial stuff. Oftentimes financial abuse is a big thing. So they may have total control over the finances. You don't know what's going on with the finances. Maybe you're on an allowance. You're not allowed to work. Or if you do work, the money goes right to their account. You don't know your investments. You don't know what you have or where. Nothing's in your name. 
So you have no earning potential. So if you were to leave, you haven't worked in 20 years, what are you going to do? I tell people if they can safely or have somebody else do it for you, slowly start to set aside money just so that you have something, even if it's minimal, it makes you feel like you have some control, but do it in a very safe manner because you don't, you really don't want them. You just don't want them to know you're doing it. So those are kind of the big ones that I, that I talk about. I think that that kind of helps regardless of the situations that, that you're in. No, a hundred percent. And, you know, I can't stress enough, you know, the support system is really important and it's really about Mm -hmm. people who have been through this, who can help you to give you the right tools. Don't just Google stuff. Like you really need to make sure that you're speaking to somebody (laughs) who is well-versed in this area, you know, and, and on the other side too, I'm sure that there's people listening and tuning in who have gotten out and are now concerned about, well, I want to find love again. I, I want to find somebody new. I, I want to start dating, but oh my God, how do I look out for this? How do I like, how do I end the cycle? Right. How do I not attract the same type of person? So how can those people who are listening in that position really put their best foot forward as they're moving into their new life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I tell people after they get out of this type of relationship to, to, hold off on dating for a couple of reasons. One, you need to recover, right? This isn't a normal breakup. This is like, you know, people have described it as like my, my soul was taken from me. And this isn't just a breakup with a bad guy, you know, who, this isn't even a breakup with somebody who's to minimize this, but somebody who's physically abusive or somebody who's verbally abusive. This is different. This is a, a very different type of breakup not just because of the physical abuse and emotional abuse. There's so many layers to this that are, from a behavior therapy standpoint, are, are so so calculated in terms of the reinforcement that they want to get back. So it, it's, it's a very different type of breakup. What, what I would suggest for people that are kind of in this and they, 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 they want to get out, they don't know how to get out, like you said, the support network, I think is so critical, but I, I want to say this before I forget, because you said it and it reminded me of it. In addition to Googling your stuff and not, not just reading stuff, just to read stuff. If you go to see a therapist who let's say specializes in relationship, the information that they give you, and again, not, not like anyone's fault. They, they, they may give you the actual opposite of what you are supposed to be hearing. So I just want to make that clear that if you're in therapy and you feel at any point that you are being told to re-engage or to try again, just be mindful of that. Just be very aware of that because I I think it's so important because the last thing you want to do is be invalidated when you just went through this. I just want to get that clear. Now I forgot your original question, but I wanted to make sure because it's so important because people say, well, I'm in therapy, but right. And you want right. to make sure that you're, you're getting the proper information. But I just wanted to say that and I, I held it on to my head and so I forget your question. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> it's totally good for people who are listening that are, you know, venturing back out, trying to rebuild yeah. their, their Thank life you. and yes. are thinking about dating. How do they make sure they don't attract or go for the same type of person? So that's where it's going with the support network to have people outside because you're going to need someone to pull you out. That's objective, right? So when you, when you do start dating, be in therapy while you're doing this. You know, I joke with my patients about this. I'm kind of like they're 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 like I, I 
the relationship checker, right? Before they go on a date. And so if you're not in therapy, that's where the support network comes in. You have to have the support network to run it by them, to have that objectivity because you're still kind of, you're still in it. This takes a really long time for your sense of self to recover, regroup and regrow, which is okay. And that it should take a long time. Um, but you need other people around you to kind of reference and social reference it. Say, am I doing it again? Because not that it is your fault. However, there are patterns that you engage in that make it more likely, let's say for you, than somebody who doesn't have those patterns to maybe gravitate towards somebody who has more narcissistic characteristics. For example, people pleasers, people who put their needs second or who don't even think their needs matter who maybe growing up were never allowed to voice their their concerns or their opinions. And if they took care of themselves, they were rude and selfish, you know, or people that are, you know, the, the do-gooders, the fixers, right? Like, you know, we, we help people all the time. It's kind of our natural reaction to want to like fix things. You can't fix a narcissist, period, end of story. And so you want to make sure that you don't gravitate towards somebody who seems like they need fixing. You can't date their potential. You have to date who they are at the moment. So your need to fix people, your need to please people has to really be worked on because it may make you amazing in other areas of your life, right? But when it comes to dating, you have to be very mindful of your patterns. So it's a lot of pattern work that you need to do and that's in therapy. And that really is the number one thing that's going to help you or prevent you from getting into these things. Also, just educate, educating yourself about red flags, right? The love bombing and being able, which is so difficult to know the difference between feeling good because you're in a healthy relationship or feeling amazing because you have this person who is like, just came into your life and swooped you up and swept you away. And being able to say no to that, which is really difficult for somebody, let's say, who's never had that type of attention or perceived love. It's very difficult. So I think it, that information piece is brutal in the beginning. Yeah, hundred percent. And I know that, you know, so many people are, you become addicted, right? You become addicted yes. to the cycle, right? When it's really good, it's really good. But then when it's Correct. not, it's really not. And, That's right. you know, and, and typically you hear the justification, oh, but, you know, but they, they love me so much and this, that, and the mm-hmm. other. And so I think all the advice that you have given to our audience today has been invaluable. Jamie, is there anything else that we maybe didn't address today that you want to share just like a last tidbit of information for our listeners? Yeah, I think the only other thing, and I, you know, I'm very aware this is way easier said than done. There are children in the mix. One of the things that I hear my patients, particularly women say, I don't want to get a divorce. I don't want to do that to my children, right? I don't want my kids to not have a two-parent home or I don't, you know, whatever the case may be. And I'm making a very generalized statement here. And I understand all situations are different. All things being equal, should you stay in a relationship with someone who has true narcissistic personality disorder and you're not leaving because you don't want to hurt your children, you also have to keep in mind that your children are picking up patterns of abuse, of accepting abuse, of not saying, you know, those types of things. And so you really want to make sure that if that's your reason for staying, I'm not saying it's not a good reason. I just want people to kind of look into that a little bit more because, you know, you don't want your kids to model any of this. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, kids being raised in a happy home that may just have one parent is so much healthier and so much better for them in the long run than it is to stay. I I think that's great, incredible advice for people to consider. Again, every situation is different. However, just know kids are super resilient. We don't give them enough credit. That's right. Um, You know, and, and they deserve to see what a healthy relationship looks like and also what a parent standing in their power of their using their voice and feeling heard looks like setting boundaries and refusing to accept certain things. Absolutely. hundred percent. Jamie, thank you so much for the wisdom that you shared today. People want to get more information from you or reach out. How can they find you? Sure. Uh, My website is drjamiezuckerman.com. A lot of information and links to articles and things like that. I have workshops on there on these topics. And my Instagram, I post a lot of stuff about narcissism as well. That's dr. Period z underscore psychologist. I have a Twitter account. I post similar stuff to it's doctor. I think it's doctor z psychologist without any of the punctuation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we also have, just so everybody knows, in the show notes are going to be all the different ways that you guys can also get a hold of Jamie. Um, Jamie, thank you again for being my guest today. It's it's always wonderful to connect with experts in you know different fields than what I my expertise is in. And I just I'm really grateful and thankful for you for sharing your wisdom today. No, thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity because we know this information is, you know needed. So hopefully it it helps somebody. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, as all of my listeners know, I strive with each and every episode to provide those of you listening with a nugget of information that helps you navigate wherever it is that you are in your process of divorce and separation. So thank you all for tuning in today. Thank you again, Jamie. I hope that you guys have a beautiful rest of your day. Sending tons of love, light, and joy as always. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorced Woman's Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this episode with someone you know or spread the word on social media. This is how I reach more divorcees around the world and provide them with the support they need to create their next best life. And I would also love to continue the conversation with you. So please friend me on Facebook, join my private Facebook group, The Divorce Rehab, and follow me on Instagram at Divorce Rehab with Wendy. I'll see you next time.